Good morning, Redemption Church. My name is Stephanie Rudman, and I'm a member here. Let us read together Romans 3, 21 through 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Stephanie. Please pray with me as we get ready to hear from this, this text. God, quiet our hearts, we pray. Help us to see and understand both the depths of our sin this morning, the implications of our sin, and also the incredible stakes of our sin. God, we, of course, do not delight to look at what you have said about our sin. It is terrifying. And yet help us to see in this picture and portrait of our sin just how desperately we need to be made righteous. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, in this five-week series, we are going to focus on just 10 verses uh, in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. Uh, that's the passage we just had read. Uh, we will read that passage each week, and each week uh, we are going to look at a different aspect of these 10 verses. Now, why would we do that? Uh, why would we spend literally a week, basically every two verses here, 10, 10 verses, five weeks, that seems excessive, but Ultimately, it's because in these verses, the Apostle Paul writes probably the most clear and powerful explanation of what it truly means to be a Christian and also how to become one. Now, I'm just convinced that if there is one thing we need to grasp and teach as clearly as possible, this is it. 
We can get many things wrong as a church. We may get many things wrong even, but none of them will have as dire a consequence as if we get this wrong. More importantly, nothing will make our lives, our relationships, and our church more vibrant and more glorious than a crystal clear understanding of what it truly means, again, to be a Christian and how to become one. Now, in that sense, I hope this series will serve uh, over the years even, maybe, as a helpful resource first to uh, recall these precious truths for ourselves, but also uh, to share even these sermons with friends who are maybe unsure about Christianity and and looking uh, for more, wanting to know more about what it's really all about. I cannot think of a better place to take them in Scripture than, than these 10 verses, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. Today, though, we are going to focus primarily on all that leads up to Romans chapter tw- uh, 3, verse 21, because it is there that Paul begins by establishing the real problem that Christ has come to fix for us. In the first two and a half chapters of Romans, we are confronted in a powerful way with the problem of sin. Have you ever been confronted by someone about something specific that you've done wrong? Then you know this feeling, right? This pit in your stomach, that restless, nagging sense, that decision really that you have to make sort of then and there. Will I own whatever it is that they're confronting me about? Or will I deny and defend and justify myself as I accuse them and attack them back? It's a very difficult thing to be confronted in this way. Uh, To come face to face with someone's disappointment and approval of us. We've all been there, I trust. And our response to a confrontation like this typically depends on a few important factors. You know, do we trust and respect the one who's confronting us? Uh, Does it seem like they have the whole picture in mind here? Are they being fair? And also, of course, are they right? Are we truly in the wrong? But how will we respond when it is God himself in the pages of scripture who confronts us? These are the kinds of questions we'll be considering this morning as we look at Romans chapter one to three. Uh, You'll notice the title of this series is Made Righteous. The subtitle is how the gospel of Jesus Christ makes sinful people righteous and, and why. And this is because in the first three chapters of Romans, if there is one thing Paul makes incredibly clear, it's that the spiritual problem we are all faced with is a problem of righteousness, or in our case, unrighteousness. And so at the outset, I think it's going to be important, really important for us to define what is righteousness. Uh, so that we can better understand what it would even mean then to be made righteous. Go figure with a concept so pivotal, as you can imagine, there is quite a bit of debate among Christians about exactly what this word righteousness really means. I'll give you my best sense insofar as I can tell as to what it means. 
Uh, during the Protestant Reformation, there was a huge emphasis, I think rightly so, on the legal aspect of righteousness. The word was often basically understood to mean innocent or morally above reproach. And without question, this legal component is an essential aspect of, of righteousness. It's very closely related to holiness, to, to purity. But as we consider how this word righteousness is used throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it seems clear it also has something to do with the relationship between God and his covenant people. Uh, in other words, uh, the biblical notion of righteousness, it, it basically refers to a specific kind of holiness and purity. Uh, righteousness is the spiritual quality that enables someone to be faithful to a commitment they have made, and here's the key, no matter what, even when it's incredibly hard. Righteousness is a spiritual quality, for instance, that would lead someone to rescue and to redeem a covenant partner even though they've broken the covenant and tarnished the relationship. Think of a spouse who has, for instance, been cheated on but opts to stick with the marriage. This is a picture, I think, a beautiful picture of what righteousness is, it looks like in the world. When the innocent party, that's the legal aspect, is willing to remain faithful to the guilty party, that's the covenant aspect, and in so doing, because of this righteousness, their relationship is rescued and repaired. Now, Paul makes it abundantly clear here that God has this spiritual quality of righteousness in abundance. And it's just true, right? We saw it even in our recent series with Esther. He is constantly going above and beyond to rescue his covenant people in just over-the-top sort of ways, even when they're at odds with him and in exile because they are unfaithful to him. The reason he does that over and over and over throughout the scriptures is because, church, he is righteous. Meanwhile, how do you typically respond when you have even the faintest sense that someone has wronged you? How do we respond when we are asked to make a commitment and then come to find that, wow, the commitment is really hard? You see this? We, we were made to be in covenant relationship with this God, but we lack the spiritual quality that is needed for that relationship to flourish, to work even. The name of that spiritual quality we lack is righteousness. In the first two and a half chapters of Romans, Paul's going to establish we do not have it. And then in chapter 3, from verse 21 to 31, he will explain how we can get it. How sinful people like you and me can be made righteous. And before we get to the beginning of this letter here, it will be helpful to know a few things about the reason that Paul wrote it to begin with. Uh, most scholars agree there is likely something very significant that happened in Rome around this time that actually would have led Paul to write this letter. In particular, the Jews there in the capital city of Rome were kicked out of the city. This is likely because of how disruptive this whole Jesus movement had become. And since especially early on at first, it was mostly seen as a Jewish movement. So something must have happened. For some reason, the Romans were very concerned. They decided, okay, Jews, you have to leave the city 
of Rome. This is probably what Luke refers to in the book of Acts, chapter 18, when he says this, that Paul found a Jew named Aquila recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, who's a Roman military leader, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. This is sort of the historical backdrop uh, that's important to understand for this letter. But I want you just to imagine being a Jewish member of a local church in first century Rome. The church had just started not long ago. Jesus had just risen from the dead not long ago. And there's this complicated mixture of Jews and Gentiles or non-Jews, sort of covenant outsiders, who are all part of this church. Now, as a Jew, of course, you would have been far more familiar with the Old Testament story and scriptures. Your ancestors had kind of all along been sort of waiting for this Messiah King to come. He had finally come, right? Meanwhile, these Gentiles who had no clue often about your heritage, scriptures, or religion, they were now fellow members of this covenant family with you. Then imagine things get really tense in Rome, You're ushered out of the city. You're told to leave. It's hard to say for how long, uh, most likely months, maybe even a year or more. And, And while you're gone, your church is led by these Gentiles who, who just became God's people like five minutes ago. And then eventually things let up and imagine you're welcomed back. You come back to Rome And you show up again at church that Sunday. If things were tense before, which clearly they were, just imagine how tense they would be then. That is more than likely the situation in these Roman churches which led Paul to write this letter. It's very clear, even just based on the content of the letter, that Paul wrote this to address serious cultural tensions between the Jewish and the non-Jewish members of these churches. See, some Gentile members were likely ashamed of the Jewish roots of the gospel message and may have wanted to sort of distance themselves from those Jewish roots so they didn't constantly feel less than within the life of these churches. Meanwhile, some Jewish members were likely ashamed that the Gentiles were included in this gospel message because it was yet another constant reminder that they themselves were now equals and they were peers within the church. See, in both cases, both groups looked at this gospel message, the good news that he lived, Christ died, and Christ rose again, but there was something about the message they were ashamed of. Something they didn't like. Something that made them uncomfortable. Meanwhile, Paul says, if you look with me at Romans chapter 1 and verse 5, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who in Rome. And notice why he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And notice he adds, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, which is his way of saying non-Jew. But, but according to Paul, here is why this good news of Jesus is the power of God for salvation. It's because in it, in this gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by 
faith. If you go back to the introduction a little earlier, he also hints at this. This is the entire point of his ministry. He tells us in chapter or 1, verse 5, that he and his fellow apostles were, quote, uh, at, were after the obedience of faith, as opposed to just obedience to the law, for the sake of Christ's name among all nations, as opposed to just the nation of Israel. You see this? It's a really good one-sentence summary of the book of Romans, by the way. It's about the obedience of faith among all nations. In other words, the cross and resurrection are this ultimate display of God's righteousness. And one thing they've accomplished is to reorganize this covenant people of God. Turns out it's not just that the righteous live in obedience to God and his law. That's not what makes the righteous righteous. It turns out it's not only the Jews who could be righteous because they're the physical descendants of God's Old Testament people. No, that's not what makes the righteous righteous either. It is that they live by faith in the crucified and risen Son of God. They trust, they rely, they depend on Him, as we just heard from our, our friends this morning. And it is this that makes them righteous, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Now, from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is basically doing but one thing. He is arguing that all people are sinful because none of them are righteous. Or as I'll state it for the sake of our claim today, we are all unrighteous. First, he wants us to see that this is true of the Gentile world. This is where he starts. He starts off with a pretty sweeping summary here in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he, go on, he goes on to explain that even though they did not have God's law, it was not given to them, these Gentiles, Paul says, are without excuse because the God who made them has made himself, his existence, and his character, he's made these things evident in all of creation. In other words, anyone should be able to look around at the world we live in and say, there must be a God, and I must know him. But in verse 22, he says, instead, claiming to be wise, these Gentiles became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, they worshiped everything but the God who created everything. He explains, for this reason, God gave them up, handed them over to all kinds of dishonorable passions that distort his good design for the creation, particularly homosexual sin. And in verse 28, if you would read with me, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
Wow. And he says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, right? They're without excuse. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is a incredibly dark and depressing glimpse of the spiritual state of the entire Gentile world. I want you to do me a favor. If you are born an ethnic Jew, I want you to raise your hand with today. Anyone born into Jewish family, ethnic Jew? I don't see any hands. That means this describes all of us. We stand condemned before a holy God without excuse because of our unrighteousness. And this is where the point in the letter when the proud Jewish members of this church probably would have been tempted to sort of smirk and smugly nod their heads. See, I told you. These Gentiles, they are a huge problem. Listen, you guys need to shut up. You guys need to pay attention to us and follow our lead here. We are God's people. But then starting at the beginning of chapter 2, it gradually becomes clear that Paul's focus is now shifting from the Gentiles to the Jews. And it turns out it is not pretty for them either. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 17. Paul says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, you can almost hear his sarcasm, right? And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, he says, dishonor God by breaking the law, for it is written, this is huge, the name of God, he's quoting the Old Testament, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And it's important to remember this is coming very much from a former Jew himself, a true Jew even by birth, a Jew to that day by blood. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, Jews, we are not the solution to the problem of sin either. We have complicated this story even further. We, we have blasphemed the name of our God among the Gentile world. And so look with me at chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says directly, what then? Are we Jews any better off? And he says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, he quotes a series of, of likely psalms. He says, no one is righteous. No, not one. Not one Jew. Not one Gentile. Not one merely mortal human being ever on planet earth. No one understands, he continues. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
And as he goes on to say at the end of chapter 3, verse 22, there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This, according to Paul, is the dire spiritual problem we all have. No matter what family we were born into or how morally upright we may think we are, the truth is we are all unrighteous. And therefore, if we have any hope of being set back on good terms with this God, we will have to be made righteous, which is the entire point of these 10 verses we'll be looking at the next five weeks. But church, if this whole good news of Jesus is going to do any one of us any good whatsoever, then this truth must be settled in our minds, in our hearts, in our souls, that in and of ourselves, we are not righteous. And, and that is a huge problem. It's a huge problem. So for the rest of this sermon, I want to discuss three important implications of all these things. And I just want, just want to warn you, it is tempting to run from these things. Uh, it's tempting to look the other way, to sort of either avoid it, kind of wiggle out of it. Uh, but instead, I pray we would come to grips with it. More than that, I pray that as we see the depths of our unrighteousness and consider what it means more than anything else this morning, we would begin to see just how badly we need to be made righteous. That said, here's our first takeaway. Number one, all of us deserve God's just condemnation. Uh, to sort of underscore this, I'm going to simply rephrase or, or reread even in some cases a few of Paul's key claims in Romans 1 to 3. We have all sinned, he says, against a holy and righteous God. We have fallen short of his glory. We have turned aside together. We have all become worthless in and of ourselves. There is no fear of God before our eyes. We have exchanged his truth for a lie and worshiped and served everything but him Friends, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all of our unrighteousness and ungodliness because by our unrighteousness, we have suppressed the truth. And we are, as Paul says here, without excuse. But hold on, wait a second. What about, no, no. As Paul says in, in chapter three, verse 19, the whole idea here is that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. This is not a popular message. Uh, it is not one that this world will ever applaud us for teaching, uh, but it could not be any clearer. All of us deserve judgment because we are unrighteous. And, and, and here's the thing, much like when we're confronted by, by anyone else, right? Again, we have to sort of decide here. Do we trust and respect the one who's confronting us? In this case, the God of, of the Bible. Does it seem like he has the whole picture in mind? Like he's being fair? And of course, most importantly, is he right? 
Are we truly unrighteous? And does it matter this much? Listen, you're going to have to wrestle with the, the problem of evil and, and where evil came from to begin with. You're going to have to wrestle with that. You're going to have to take a good, long look at the spiritual quality of your inner life. And you're going to have to decide at the end of the day if you really believe that this diagnosis is true of you. That is a spiritual kind of work that is between us and the God who made us, each of us individually. But if he really did inspire the writing of this letter, then we just have to deal with a few very uncomfortable and inconvenient realities. Uh, first, that we are unrighteous. Second, as a result, we deserve his condemnation. His wrath is revealed from heaven. And third, listen very carefully. None of this makes God a cruel or mean God. Not even close. His wrath is revealed against our unrighteousness, and that wrath is perfectly just. After Paul explains what Christ has done so that sinners can be made righteous, he specifically says in chapter 3, verse 26, that God went about saving us in this specific way so that he might be, quote, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Now that word justify basically is the same word for righteousness. It's just in the form of a verb. It's like an action word. Uh, so to justify someone, for instance, is to make them righteous. It's to righteousify them. And so to be a justifier is to be the righteousifier. It's to be the righteous making one. But just consider what this means. That God sent Jesus Christ so that he could be both just and our justifier. Church, it means that even if he had not sent Christ, even if he did not make anyone righteous at all, even if he condemned all of us to an eternity in hell, he would not be the justifier, that's true, but he would still have been just. Friends, we are going to see how Jesus rescues us from this just condemnation, I promise. I pray that many would hear even this sermon series and be set free from their unrighteousness and their sin. Of course, right? This is the whole point of our church. This is what it means to be redeemed. This is why we exist. But no one will be rescued from God's just condemnation. Listen, not even a single person unless they first come to grips with the simple fact that they deserve it. Do we believe what Paul is so clearly claiming here about our sin and its implications? Have we looked intently at the true spiritual quality of our life and said before this God, God, you are right. You are right about me. You are holy. You are righteous and I am neither. If not, I pray you would that you would say this before this God, even today, even right now as you sit in this service. But if so, here's what that also means. Number two, righteousness will never come from within us. It will never come from within us. There's a lot of interesting discussion these days about the self 
and the inner life, uh, including a lot of talk about self-esteem, self-care, how we self-identify in any number of ways. There's a lot of work being done also within the world of psychology around notions like emotional trauma, uh, which has been incredibly helpful, I trust, in many ways. Uh, the idea is basically that much like with the, uh, like a major physical injury, like a trauma to the head, for instance, uh, the effects of a deep emotional hurt can have long can last long after the actual injury themselves. It just seems seems undeniably true, not particularly controversial. And there are lots of different thoughts and strategies to help people heal in this way. In many ways, the, these I think are things that we can celebrate. But meanwhile, as our interest in these invisible realities, like trauma, for instance, grows, at the same time, our interest in invisible spiritual truths, like this idea here of sin, for instance, seem to be shrinking. And shrinking, frankly, in alarming rates to where many people are not comfortable with these things even being defined clearly in Scripture. When most people consider the real problems in their lives and even increasingly their inner lives, they hardly ever stop to consider, have I sinned against God? Or have I been sinned against by someone else? And how does God feel about the spiritual quality of all these things that are taking place in my life? What kind of effect do these things have in my relationship with this God? Listen, certainly there is a danger in ignoring our physical bodies, things like brain chemistry and hormones, as we try to live healthy God-honoring lives. There's much for us to learn and to benefit from there. I certainly don't want to suggest we should be skeptical of all these things. But I do fear we could easily fall off the other side of this horse as well, and begin to pursue a healthy inner life without much of an emphasis on spiritual realities and truths which are revealed for God's saints throughout the ages, particularly things like this, like sin. Uh, there are certainly many layers to our inner lives and, and lots of overlap, I trust, with our bodily life. But if, if there is one thing the Bible is profoundly clear about from cover to cover, it is this idea that the deepest, most dire problem that every single human being faces is not first physiological. It's, it's not just some imbalance in our bodies. It, it's not first even just emotional. The effects of the deep hurt we've felt and it's certainly not just social, the fallout from toxic relationships. All three of these problems may be very relevant in the life of every person on earth. In fact, I, I trust they are. But the Bible is clear from cover to cover. Our far deeper and more dire problem is our unrighteousness. Every problem we face in some way is downstream of this greater spiritual problem of sin. First, our sin, but also then also other sin and its impact in our lives. Church, it is so important to build our lives on these spiritual convictions about sin because every other earthly philosophy will suggest some new and novel way to sort of dig deep down in your heart to find the key to it all, right? The secret sauce that will unlock how to discover your true and best self. But the truth is, as we look inside ourselves, we do not find the solution. We find the problem. Jeremiah, the prophet, puts it this way. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Church, this is what we find if we search the depths of our soul and our heart 
with any shred of honesty. What we find is not righteousness, not integrity, joy, goodness, purity, none of these things. What we find is confusion and deception. And so have you also accepted this aspect of God's diagnosis to your sin? Not only that we deserve judgment, but also that the remedy to our sin-sick souls is not found within our sin-sick soul. Have we stopped the spiritual quest to prove that we are really kind of righteous after all? Have we stopped trying to justify ourselves so that we, church, can be justified by someone far greater? Ultimately, I, I think we'll see when you peel back all the layers here, the real pressing question is whether or not we will respond to all of these things with humility or with pride. It really is, in some ways, that simple. Really, this is, I think, one of the most powerful applications of a biblical doctrine of sin. It's point number three. None of us has any reason to boast. None of us. After explaining how sinful people are made righteous, in chapter 3, verse 27, Paul says, then what becomes of our boasting? Notice his answer is very simple. It is excluded. It's excluded. It must be done away with altogether. That there is no room any longer, no room at all for boasting on anyone's part within this spiritual framework we're talking about. How could there possibly be if according to this God, we are all unrighteous and deserving of his wrath? Now, Many people tend to think that if we talk too much about sin or if we take it too seriously or give people the impression it's too big of a problem, they may be driven to despair or self-hatred. And certainly this is possible, particularly if we don't also preach Christ as we preach sin, who will be the glorious point of the rest of our series. But for this reason, sin is often spoken of as if this must just be the goal. Anytime someone clearly defines sin or warns against it as I am today, they must be motivated by hatred, many think. They must want to just beat people down to the point where they just loathe themselves. What else could possibly come as a result of all this weighty talk about sin? Well, Church, if we hear and we receive what it is that God has to say here about our sin, it could also lead to humility. It could. Of course, it's tempting to flail our limbs and to give in to despair as we hear these things. I think any honest person would have to admit they can relate to that. This is, this is awful news. But that does not make it any less true. Not to mention, this is often how guilty people respond when they are accused of being guilty. But after reading all that Paul has to say here about our sin and its consequences, what if, rather than questioning the historical authenticity of this letter, or whether or not the Bible's really God's word, in the way that that pastor just said, or 
some of the finer points maybe of Paul's theology. What if instead of resisting these claims with a proud and haughty heart that really only serves to prove our unrighteousness more than anything, what if instead we simply took a moment, we simply took a moment to slow down to consider what we have all just read and to humble ourselves before this God? It may be that this kind of humility is the very thing we all so desperately need. It may be that this kind of humility is the first essential step to being made righteous. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to sing that all we have is Christ, I pray that you would help us also in our hearts to see how little we have apart from him. How little of worth, of value, of spiritual significance, particularly when compared to your perfect righteousness, which is on display there in, in, um, in the vision that we read in our call to worship this morning from Isaiah. God, I pray that we would be more in awe this morning of your holiness than terrified by the consequences of our sin. But I pray as we behold you, holy, 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 that we would also respond in the same way that Isaiah has, woe is me. We are an unclean people. We are in desperate need of a righteousness that could never come from within us. Be with us in the coming weeks as we seek to proclaim where that righteousness is found. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.